I'm Catherine Kingsley. And I'm Catherine Stone. And this is Contemplating Culture, a missionary walk through a secular age. Together we journey through a secular age by Charles Taylor, a book looking at the history and philosophy of how the world got where it is and the impacts of our contemporary culture for us today as missionaries. And we're inviting you to join the conversation. Hello and welcome back to Contemplating Culture. If you remember, last time we were talking, we were talking about the concept of fullness of life and what it looks like in different people's minds and hearts. We talked about the fact that for us Christians, fullness of life isn't something that we need to stuff into the time that we have before we die, but that for us death is like an open door and fullness of life is actually found on the other side. And this makes a huge difference to the way that we approach life. This week we're shifting focus a little bit and looking at what's inside our heads as we contemplate the other, calling it maybe naiveties and pain points. How do we look at somebody who has different beliefs to us? And how might they look at us? KK's been quite silent to this point (laughs) because she doesn't have much voice. Apart from the fact that that gives me a chance to steal all the airtime, it's actually quite apt for a podcast on culture because she's sharing this cultural moment with many, many other people who are suffering from or recovering from coronavirus. Yeah, so I'm on, I'm on the tail end. I had a good extended isolation of about uh, 10 or 11 days, and I'm not infectious anymore, but <laughs> my voice is still getting there. I hope you can hear the graveliness through the recording there. <laughs> it's quite impressive, really. It's a good segue, though, to what we're discussing today, because everyone's experience of corona is very different, even within our own sisterhood. Some people have been quite sick. Some people, except for the fact they were asked to do a rat test, might never have noticed that they had it. And even between those who are sick, there are different symptoms, different experiences of how long it lingers. You can't assume that coronavirus looks the same for one person as it does for another. And I think that's a good way of looking at, or a good metaphor for looking at faith or lack of faith in people. I think it's easy for us as Christians to look at those who are not Christian and assume that what that looks like is the same for all of them. And that affects the way that we relate to them, the way that we evangelize them. KK, do you want to break open what Charles Taylor has to offer about this? Yeah, so even before maybe we get to that point, I wanted to look at, he has something called the backgrounds of belief, which is, I guess, looking at not even the other, but the naiveties we have about the world right now. And so he says, like, It's impossible now to be a believer in the same way that someone was a believer 500 years ago. Um, And he has a couple of terms and their dichotomies to give an example of this. So, for example, he says, if you understand what the word supernatural means, then you are not living 500 years ago. Like, if you can see a distinction between the natural and the supernatural, then you're living in this present age. And that's just a naivety that we take for granted, that... You might never have thought that you could live in a time where you didn't need different words for them. So I think what I'm hearing is that for me to relegate such things as miracles and angels into a category that reads supernatural makes me a creature of the 21st century as opposed to the 16th century where angels, miracles, that sort of thing were just part of the background of ordinary life which you expected to see around you. Yeah, yeah, that we can now look at a forest and say that's a forest full of trees 
Whereas before they might have been, you know, some kind of spirits or things like that moving in the forest and they were kind of intertwined with the forest. It wasn't a separate thing. And so one of the other things that he talks about is the imminent and the transcendent. So the imminent being the things here and now that I can touch, the transcendent being the things that go beyond the here and now. And he says, same thing, like they were so united that you couldn't have conceived them separately. But now we can try something like the mass. We might say, well, that's where the imminent and the transcendent are meeting. Or we might say they're meeting in the human person when they're in a place of prayer or something like that. But we're more about talking about those points of meeting rather than that being an ongoing reality of everything. And then the final one he says is like theist and atheist. You just didn't have that kind of difference. You had everyone believed because they had to believe because their existence couldn't be sustained without belief. They couldn't be connected to their community. They couldn't be safe from, and we're going to look at these in the coming weeks, but all the different things that held their belief in place that maybe they didn't have a personal relationship with God, but it was kind of um, maybe in isolated cases, but as a general culture movement, it wasn't really possible. Um, There was just so many points of connection for people. And so all of these things, I guess, are part of what we have as just our background of belief now that makes it different to believe 500 years ago. So even if we believe the same things as Thomas Aquinas, we can't believe in the same way because we're believing as opposed to not believing. We're integrating all of these different things and it's it's work for us to integrate them, whereas 500 years ago that was just part of the world. So am I hearing that it's more, more of a conscious choice for people these days? Um, yeah, I think there is a choice. I think that's not to say there wasn't a choice 500 years ago. I guess I'm thinking that if the prevailing society and culture pretty much upholds you in a way like, you know, see water helps you float, um, there's a lot less work involved. And so the choice is much less conscious being the word as opposed to choice. Yes. Yeah. That, that I'm playing with there. So you have to consciously think about believing in a way that you didn't have to. Yeah. And so then he talks about, I guess, in this situation now, that kind of looking at different assumptions that we might have about the other. And effectively, it's ways that we think that the other party is naive. So for the atheist, they might look at people who believe in God as just trying to search for meaning. Like they're in the world, things don't make sense all the time. So they're trying to find a way that's just human psychology. The way the brain is working is to try and connect things to make meaning. Or they might be thinking you know, like we have reason, but those people that believe in God, they're kind of just fanatics. They're a bit of enthusiasts. They're kind of a bit too emotional, all those kinds of things. So discounting on account of we've got reason, they're using other things that don't really count. Or they might be just saying like Christians, anyone of faith is just weak. They just need a crutch. Like I'm strong enough to make it through life without that. They clearly need it. And they might have differing responses for that. Isn't it funny? I've been spending a bit of time with my family recently and almost reversing in my head, assuming those thoughts which are coming towards me from non-practicing family members. Yeah. I'll kind of wondering in my head, what goes on? Do they see me as weak and like clinging to the crutch of my faith or do they see me as some kind of Pharisee who needs rules to, you know, structure and hold my life together and I can't, like, I'm going to mass because that's what you do or, like, it's funny. Yeah, I think for me it's maybe something around, like, the, she's just a fantasy daydreamer kind of thing, like, we've got, (laughs) we've got the reason, 
um, you know, it's, it's nice for her that she has this little fantasy world of, of faith. Yeah. And it's a funny thing because with family, you know, there's a lot of love. Yeah. But the reasoning still, what I feel, or my guessing of what's going on in their heads makes me feel like they're, they're lessening who I am. There's a, mm. there's a need to feel superior in their choice of something different or a feeling sorry for me in my inability to see what they can see or and that, that's a really good lead into I guess talking about the assumptions that people of faith can have people not of faith because I definitely see that the we have the truth and almost exactly what you're saying diminishing the other um, for something that you have and I think it can really impact the way that we encounter others and the dignity of the other and that's why I think why this is an important conversation is kind of raising up actually everyone's just in a different space that doesn't make you greater or lesser as a person um so some of those things might be like they just don't know that kind of like we've got the truth they just don't know if only they knew you know the goodness of god if only they knew what jesus had done for them if only they knew their need for a savior all these kinds of things or it might be um simply like a they're they're irresponsible they just don't want what's good for them like i'm telling them what's good for them they just don't want that like for their stubbornness or selfishness or whatever or it might be and I think we see this all the time with say parents that are really concerned about their kids or something like it's actually really urgent because they're going they're not in mass on Sunday or they're not doing what I think they should be doing so they're going to hell they're damned and so these are just some of the assumptions that we have or couldn't have and it it really affects the way that we interact with other people yeah it's a huge thing, really, because it's this unwritten, unspoken barrier that sits between me and the other yeah, and defines them as other in that relationship. It's quite a um, powerful thing, I think. I think the thing that was coming to me as you were talking about that was, again, coming back to this reality that it's about relationship. But what, what I was thinking about was, I think it's St. Polycarp, the story of his martyrdom. And the governor or whoever is giving him the death sentence is trying his hardest to get him to recant because he really respects him as a person and doesn't want to have to order his execution. Mm -hmm. And Polycarp turns around and he kind of recognises this in the other guy, that there's this respect sitting there. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to do this to you. Can't you just be reasonable (laughs) here? And Polycarp says, 86 years I have served him and he's done me no ill. How could I turn on him now? And for me, that just defines what holds me to faith. And you can hear the the difference in approach to this, that for Polycarp, this isn't just a set of beliefs that I've signed my name to, but a person I'm in relationship with that I'm not going to let down. And there's something really beautiful about that for me in redefining what's, what's going on here, what I'm holding on to. And I'm not defining myself over and against you, however much I want you to know, but I can't just let go of it like yeah. a set of beliefs. Yeah, yeah. It's much harder to let go of a, a person that you have encounters with. So we've kind of looked before at this notion of the marketplace and that there might be different stalls and things like that. So now Charles Taylor kind of talks about different stances that we might have. So, and it's not just the, the theist or the atheist stance but there's different positions I guess within those and even crossing across those and so one of the things Taylor talks about is that there might be different kind of things that have drawn someone into 
atheism, if we if we call it that. So the first one might be someone who kind of looked at the order of the world and realised actually more than there being reason outside that I've got to try and find, reason lives inside of me and all of the answers live inside of me and I am the maker of meaning and kind of whatever I can figure out within myself, that's kind of what I'm going to ascribe to. The second one might be something around instinct and survival, that kind of I'm responding to the world around me. And then the third one might be something around the I can see outside me in nature a harmony that I'm trying to work on within myself. And so this tension between harmony and disharmony. These are kind of like the different, I guess, works of an atheist that he might say. And then he says the king of all unbelief is to just say, actually, there's no meaning. And I'm the one who's strong enough, bold enough to live life knowing that there is no purpose, no meaning. I don't actually need to work on any of these projects of survival or of finding harmony or of finding you know, the meaning and purpose within myself, I can just accept that there is no meaning and I'm okay with that. And I guess Taylor himself is then generalising down to four different categories. What in every individual is going to be a complex combination sometimes of those things or a swinging reality. I was thinking even when you said that, I was thinking, I wonder how many people you can actually nail down as atheist in that category and how much more rather they might reject the title of theist but not necessarily want to subscribe to anything else instead as a a definite and that's where you get agnostic you know like i'm sitting in the in-between um and you mentioned swinging so that's something else that taylor talks about this difference between the times in life when you're so sure that you are totally engaged that you're inside the world and reality that you're living and then he talks about these other times that you're disengaged you kind of take a step out and you're suddenly scanning and you're noticing that there's actually other people that are believing different things and they're not inside this little world that I'm in they seem to be living something else and he says kids on a playground kind of thing you're like sometimes you're just totally in yourself and other times you just can't stop looking around so he calls these the engaged and disengaged dance and he says you're probably not going to stay in one of those for long like you'll stay you'll stay totally engaged for a while and then you'll just have this moment where you're stepping out, or you'll stay totally disengaged and then you have this moment of clarity. I guess that's not just true for those who don't describe themselves as believers, but the reality is that for the believer to that stance of engaged and disengaged can be found. Oh, definitely. Yeah, the amount of conversations that I have with, you know, practicing young Catholics who are like, I'm not really I'm not really sure about all this anymore. You know, yeah. like I'm starting to have doubts or questions or Someone who might have seemed so certain at one point, and they might be really certain again at another point, but at this point, you know, they're in that disengaged. What does this all mean? Am I in the right path? Am I doing the right work of my life? And if you come back to that marketplace image, it kind of makes sense, really. I'm engaged in this stall, and, you know, it's absorbing all my attention, and then suddenly, for some reason, someone jogs my elbow, and I notice all the other stalls. Am I sure about this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think with this movement of uncertainty and then you bring in consumerism, which was this new development, I guess, of not just things being sold for use, but things being sold almost like creating the need to sell something into a market. That it's no longer I'm selling you a washing machine because you need a washing machine, but I've 
I'm suddenly adding on these features that you didn't even need, but they're going to hit something else in you. And so I think we see the marketing world really taking hold of the pain points in these different stances that no longer is the world just offering you something that you functionally need, but it's it's offering you things that might be hitting some of these other points in you. You know, there might be loneliness, there might be all kinds of different things. And so then I guess the work for us in evangelization is to do the same thing, to look at the pain points in the human story at the moment, in this confusion and things like that, and look at not how can I abuse that pain point to make money, but how can the story of Jesus be brought into that place? So maybe we'll just explore some of those different pain points. And I think this is going to be the, the ongoing work of us, is, is really the heart of evangelization at the moment, is, is where does the gospel speak into the world at the moment? So I think one of the first ones is kind of easy to see. So that reason kind of centered non-belief that we were talking about is characterized, I guess, most clearly in the enlightenment. And we see the pain point because then out of that, we see the romantic era, which is like, actually, we're really missing our emotions and we're missing being connected to our bodies and, you know, the senses. Um, So that's, I guess, a really easy one to see that when we separate our personhood into different parts, And when we're accentuating some aspects more than the others, we start to miss it. You know, we start to get nostalgia for this longing for, oh, I just, you know, want to have an emotional encounter. I want, what do these things mean? Like, actually, I do want to engage my body and all those different kinds of things. Or vice versa. I'm really sick of looking at my emotions. Can we just have a functional conversation for a second? Yeah. Yeah, So that would be the counter romantic movement. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When we're looking at, Um, I was talking about that work of instinct and survival. So using those things that that becomes the work of like, I've just got to make it through kind of thing and make the best out of this situation. I think there's something around the working to survive mentality that just feels a little bit or can feel like maybe a little bit subhuman. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like I'm, I'm just a cog in a machine, that kind of feel. Mm. Um, That sort of hamster wheel sense of like, I'm just working so hard. I can't see where it's going. Yeah. Yeah. I think as well in there, there might be something around, you're like, where's the joy? (laughs) Where's the joy in that? Where's the intimacy, the vulnerability, the things that might bring more to the life? And then also just like, where's the need or the purpose or the, the goodness of Sabbath in that, the breaking free from my life is about productivity. And then there's the work of, you know, that constant pursuit of harmony. And I think that that is like an endless project. It's like trying to tune a guitar with the wrong strings on it. It's like trying to empty a whole bucket full of water just hand by hand, but it keeps getting filled up. It's like this endless project that we might be finding meaning in doing it. Yeah, something about it is just never satisfying. It's it's a funny thing. It's, It's a bit like that instinct survival thing. Instinct survival, like you just keep working hoping at some point to arrive at a place where you can relax and enjoy the fruits of your work if you like but you never quite seem to get there and the same kind of thing I'm just looking for a comfortable space where I feel at home in myself and in the world and I just keep seeming to find something that is you know not quite right and I need to work on in myself it's like your person is a lifelong project that never Mm -hmm. quite gets there yeah yeah I think you nailed it it's that there's no point of arrival and that's not to say that 
in the Christian life that you're going to find this place of arrival that's totally satisfying. It's not that at all, but it's just looking at, well, what is the pain points of these places going to be? And I think it's probably more, and I'd love to hear if, if people listening had some ideas as well, because like for us, it's really in the heart of what we're doing is trying to journey with people. And I think that that's something that we were talking about earlier is that need for accompaniment. Yeah. And I think, you know, the thing that makes those pain points less of a big deal is when you have somebody who is sharing that journey with you, who can see from another perspective, who is able to be with you in that place. It doesn't feel quite so lonely. And I think there's something really incarnational about that. It's something like what Jesus has done for us, that in stepping into our world, becoming one with us, sharing our pain points, that Jesus in sharing our human lot knows what it's like to be lonely, that those things are are somewhere that Jesus meets us. And in commissioning us as his followers to do the same for one another, he knew that there was something really powerful in what he was asking of us and modelling for us. Yeah, and I think Jesus is always the model for us of, of what this looks like, just coming alongside people. Yeah, Jesus incarnate is God coming alongside us and our I guess our mission is to continue that incarnational accompaniment with humanity. And I think as Christians, we're not doing that alone. There's Christ in me that is accompanying the other as well. So I think one of the traps that can happen is that we can maybe identify some of these pain points and go, well, this is the work of someone who's experiencing that model of unbelief, I guess. Like their work is to search for inner harmony or their work is to just keep their head above water and survive and stay connected to community or whatever it is, or their work is to satisfy themselves as much as they can in every moment, whatever kind of they've decided the work of their life is. But one of the things I think that we've always got to keep in check, and I think that Jesus did this really well, was exactly what we're talking about, that staying really personal, that we never, like people never become our projects, that we never go to someone with assumptions, but I don't know, we stay open to being surprised, I guess. Yeah, I guess it's like that COVID analogy we started with, isn't it? That, well, you might be able to, like someone did at dinner the other night, identify, well, you must have had the Delta strain of COVID. Yeah, yeah, lost my appetite. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, that doesn't mean that you're going to follow a particular pattern and, you know, this is how we do things to get you better. But actually in nursing you or, like, living with you and ministering to you in that space, I actually just need to stay tuned to I'm hungry now yeah I don't want food now leave me alone I need some space to sleep yeah rather than me telling you what you need and this is what I'm going to give you so wake up and eat kind of yeah and actually that's a really good example because we find Jesus doing it a lot and I think it's a really good model for us in evangelization is he asks a lot of questions and I think that that's maybe one of the ways that you kind of discover you know, where someone is needing something or where the opening is for something is to ask the questions. But I don't know if you find it in spiritual direction, but I definitely find it in journeying with a lot of young women and just young people in general that there's almost like a culture of like, don't don't lean into the difficult stuff. Don't ask the big questions. Like, I'll get to that later. Or I don't know. Yeah, definitely. And also even in me, a hesitation of, I can feel you don't want to go there and I don't want to be the nasty one to push you there yeah so I can feel my own hesitation to avoid that kind of subject matter and I think the art is in going there but going there in a way that's free 
Because I think sometimes I know in a relationship that I can't go there safely with that person because I'm still too hurt myself or too strongly wanting a particular outcome or a particular answer to a question from them. And it'll come across in the way that I ask the question or how I interact with whatever they might answer or even my own fear of what they're going to say. So that maybe that is a good space to avoid until I've found that place of freedom to be with them where they're at and know that they're held in God's hands. He wants what I want for them more Mm -hmm. than I do. And the most loving thing I can do is to give them his unconditional love Mm -hmm. and be present to them where they're at now and leaving the door open for them to move where they need to move. Yeah, I'm just curious about what you said about our jobs to be giving them unconditional love. Yeah, like what is that? Because that's it can almost be like a bit of a a jargon term in some senses. Like, what would what would that look like practically? Like, how would you encourage people to live that practically in someone? And so we're talking someone who might have a lot of faith, and it might be a dear friend or a sibling or a child who they're concerned about or who isn't walking the same path of faith, like what would that unconditional love look like? That's a hard one, isn't it? I think there's something around consciously trying not to change how you are friends with them, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I notice in myself, for instance, when a good friend starts to move away from faith, there's this shift in me of not potentially getting as much out of conversation with them because I can't share as much of myself with them. So then I'm less inclined to seek them out. Yeah. And I'm sure they can feel that shift in me. But if I'm consciously going, no, I actually need to be going the extra mile in this friendship. They need me more than ever now. And making that effort to be there to find the common ground where we're still able to enjoy each other's company, enjoy each other's ideas or whatever it is. And even to let that awkwardness sit in the middle of that, to, you know, be sharing something of myself, even when it's touching on the edge of where they can't share it anymore and allow that awkwardness to sit there in the middle and not pull back anything of myself in that friendship. Yeah you almost feel like you've got a choice in those moments of do I lean in to that difficult place where it's like, I know you're not in the same place, but I want to still share this with you. And it's difficult, I think, especially if it's someone that you have had faith as a common element of your relationship. But one of the things that I found really helpful in our formation MGL is that we looked at the 12 types of intimacy And um, I think it's helpful for any kind of relationship that we can be so, when we're so used to connecting with someone on one level, it can be really confronting when maybe that's taken away, but we can actually still connect with them on other levels. So there are things like if you used to share like on a faith level, maybe you can kind of talk about the intellectual level and just like what ideas and stuff do you enjoy or making something together. So the creativity of intimacy of creating together or, so there's just all these different ways that we're actually still able to have a common ground, have connection, and something about that almost continues to hold the space for if and when they want to come back into that intimacy of sharing faith. And also, like I caught myself in conversation with a friend who's exactly that situation recently, saying she asked what I was reading at the moment, and I hesitated, and I'm like, oh, I'm not sure that the sort of thing you'd be into 
And she said, like what? And I was thinking, oh, this is really awkward. And I'm like, well, and started listing, you know, I've been reading Read of God by Carol Hauslander. It's a really, really beautiful, insightful reflections on Mary as mother of God and what her journey would have been like. And I've been reading and so on and thinking, actually, we used to share this love. And if, yes, it's a bit awkward, but it's actually an open door in a way that I'm not having a go at her. I'm not pushing her anywhere. I'm not confronting her. I'm actually just genuinely, she asked the question, I'm sharing Mm. my heart, my life, my space, and I'm acknowledging there's an awkwardness around it in her, but I'm not holding back. Yeah. And I think that's really important too. Yeah, something about a transparency about who we are and what's important to us without imposing it on other people. Yeah. And yeah, like I think I think Jesus again is the perfect model. You know, like he always leaves people free, but he always shares who he is. Absolutely. And you see that confusion and that confronted reality again and again through the gospels, don't you? But he doesn't stop sharing what he's got to share and he doesn't stop loving the other for not understanding or not sharing one of my directees and I had had a conversation about you know this in in her family and she was talking about one of her children being out getting their testimony at this time and her struggle with having to watch these mistakes being made and this wandering further and further from faith and I can't remember how it came into the conversation but we we started talking about the father of the prodigal son we have this image of of leaning on the gate with the father being you know on the lookout waiting for any sign of return to rush out and meet them and rejoice with open hearts to the other and expectant hearts for their return it's so beautiful and i think maybe that's the perfect image to kind of end with today is just having an open heart next to the father leaning on the gate waiting without judgment, without judgment of what's what's happening or without even assuming we know what's going on in the other, but just being ready to receive them. So kind of from our discussion today, I think just find something in it that has been interesting or has posed a question or something like that and take it into conversation and ponder it and see how it fits with, you know, all these different people that we encounter in the world or all the different situations going on. And I think the other thing would be, like we've been talking about those pain points, take someone who might be the most unlikely person in your life to come to faith and just think about who that might be and just, I guess, wonder with God about where the truth of the gospel might speak into their life. Think about the ways that the marketing world, like if you're a marketing agent, how would you manipulate the pain that's in their life? And in an alternate way, how can the love of God reach into that place? And maybe even just spend a time of prayer, just, you know, like calling on the love of God to come and meet them in that place. Sounds good. Well, thank you for listening and we will chat again soon. This has been Contemplating Culture, a podcast produced by the Missionaries of God's Love Sisters. For more information from today's episode, be sure to check out the show notes. We pray that today has blessed you. and Most importantly, We invite you to continue the conversation.